This is the Discus Podcast. Welcome to the very first episode of Discus, Discussions in Spinal Cord Injury Science, where we'll be bringing you interviews with researchers and clinical leaders in spinal cord injury rehabilitation. This podcast is a production of the Spinal Cord Injury Special Interest Group of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy, an affiliate of the American Physical Therapy Association. I'm Rachel Tappan. Today, Dr. Andrew Smith is joining us from Regis University in Denver, where he's an assistant professor in the School of Physical Therapy. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you, Dr. Tappan. Great to be here, and uh, I'm excited to contribute what I can to DISCUS. We'll be talking about research that Andrew has been doing related to MRI and improving our ability to determine prognosis for walking in people who have had a spinal cord injury. We'll discuss the results of his study, Lateral Cortical Spinal Tract Damage Correlates with Motor Output in Incomplete Spinal Cord Injury, which was published in the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation last year in 2018. So, Andrew, first, maybe to set the stage here a little bit, uh, could you talk to us about what's currently happening in the clinic to help predict whether people will walk or how well they'll be able to walk after a spinal cord injury? Yeah, so uh, Rachel, what what typically happens after injury is um, even in the uh, intensive care unit, typically motor scores are assessed. So the patient will be lying supine, and um, the physicians and the team will come and see, "Hey, can you are you able to move your limbs, especially the legs, if you're considering walking?" Um, then they go through uh, a, a specific tests and measures that are found uh, and published by the American Spinal Cord Injury Association, and now they're considered international standards. And uh, what you get from that is a standardized motor score for the right leg and the left leg, and that's typically used to determine a patient's future ability to walk. Now, this is good, and, and we our team doesn't want to um, necessarily downplay this. It's very important and um, continues to be the, the most important predictor of walking. But um, what we found is that patients often want a bit more information than what they can currently do when they're being assessed. So other questions come up. What if the patient's sedated? Uh, what if the patient has um, a severe lower extremity fracture where they can't uh, contract their muscles, or they shouldn't because it's a contraindication. What if the patient is, um, has continued spinal shock, which typically happens after one of these injuries, where they're not able to voluntarily move their limbs yet, but perhaps could in the future. So we found uh, a few problem areas, and, and that's where our research began to really take shape and aiming to address those problem areas. Oh, that's interesting. So my background is really in rehabilitation and outpatient settings, and I hadn't thought too much about just how much the medical situation um, in acute care could really impact our ability to even have an idea of what they can do from a motor standpoint in those really critical early days. So as you talk about how we're predicting how well someone's going to be able to walk um, in the future, um, I'm not really hearing anything about imaging. Um, can you give us some background there? You know, why why doesn't imaging match up with what's going to be coming down the line as far as the person's motor recovery goes? When thinking about uh, imaging and why it is not currently being emphasized for predicting 
things like walking. I look back at the earlier studies, and especially when, when doing literature reviews for, for current papers, and earlier studies did show significant correlations with walking ability um, based on how the damage looks on, let's say, MRI. The problem is that these correlations tended to be a bit weak, and uh, the team and I have been thinking more about it, and we've came to the realization that those earlier studies that came out around the 1990s, um, they were using MRI scanners that just weren't as strong or high resolution, and that's just what was available clinically at the time, whereas now they, um, I would say, scanners throughout especially the United States, have all been upgraded. And um, there's potential for getting improved imaging of, of spinal cord damage after, after injury and potential to use that as a tool to aid in our prediction along with using our other clinical methods that we've already discussed. And I think a, a, a final reason why imaging hadn't been emphasized as much is because of the rather weak correlations found, I think that uh, especially in the, the physical medicine rehabilitation world, physiatrists, physical therapists, radiologists, I think everyone just got into a, a normal clinical practice mode that did not include imaging for prediction. And so that is kind of the norm uh, even to this day. Okay, so maybe the next best thing is for us to talk about is what you all did in your study. Uh, go ahead and maybe take us through what you all did. Okay, so first off, I just wanted to say, uh, you know, it's not just myself. It, I definitely um, lean on heavily uh, the entire team. and But for this podcast, I'll speak on the behalf of the team. Uh, we, we didn't necessarily uh, do anything completely... I would say, out of the ordinary, which in my perspective, it's a good thing because as a physical therapist, I want to perform and be a part of clinically relevant research, right? So the most exotic MRI sequences um, might be publishable, but is it practical for um, any given patient to receive those type of sequences after spinal cord injury? So what we did was we used the run-of-the-mill um, standard, what's called T2-weighted MRI sequences of a person's spinal cord damage on the cervical spine, the neck. And we looked at a view, kind of a bird's eye view, or what we call in the imaging world an axial view, and we would look image by image, or what we would say slice by slice, throughout the damage. And we just wanted to we, we use the term adult coloring. We wanted to be able to characterize the damage on each slice. So essentially what we're doing is we're drawing circles and coloring this damage. What's really nice about that particular study was we leveraged this open source software called the Spinal Cord Toolbox. So it's, it's, it's up online, um, free of charge to use for researchers like us. And we could put the adult colored image of the spinal cord damage into this open source software, the spinal cord toolbox. And it's a little bit more sophisticated than that, but the output is 
characterizing each individual's spinal cord damage according to where along specific tracts of the spinal cord um, we would expect to see deficits or damage. And that was essentially what we did for that side of things according to the imaging. Now what we also did was we had these 14 people come into the lab and we tested specific motor outputs. So we would have them sitting in a, a seat and we'd say, hey, how much can you plantar flex your ankle? Or how much, in layman's terms, can you push on the gas on your right side, on your left side? And going back to the imaging, we wanted to see, does damage in these specific areas, say the lateral cord, the spinal tract, relate to that particular person's ability to push on the gas with their right leg or their left leg. And what we found was, and what was expected, was the right-sided lateral corticospinal tract damage was then related to the inability to push on the right side of that leg and vice versa for the left. Ah, neat stuff. Yeah, so I want to make sure I'm understanding this right. So it sounds like you were taking the same MRI data that people are already gathering clinically, but then you were maybe processing it in a little bit different way and then using that information um, in a novel way of looking at it so that we could actually figure out where or where you could figure out where the damage actually is in the spinal cord. Do I have that right? Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right, Rachel. What was not novel was the imaging sequences. What you said, the novel approach was taking the run-of-the-mill clinical imaging sequences from these folks and looking at them in a different way. Uh, what's nice is we had that initial study published, uh, and now we currently have an RO3 grant from uh, the NIH, National Institute of Child Health and Human Development. And uh, I wanted to give a quick shout-out to my team. So we have Dr. Ken Weber over at Stanford, um, Jim Elliott at University of Sydney, Jeff Berliner and David Dungan and Mitch Savigny at Craig Hospital. And then Stephanie Alvin and Denise O'Dell, uh, along with me, are at Regis University. And we have now some data from Craig Hospital. These very same sequences, right? So these same, these same uh, MRIs. And now we know what these patients look like current day. Are they walking or not? Are they walking outside three blocks or more or not? And being a physical therapist, I'm mostly interested in, can we predict if these people will become community walkers? Now, some of the landmark studies that have been published fairly recently, the one I'm thinking of is back in 2011, uh, published in The Lancet, those authors quantified walking as anywhere from are you walking outside in a grocery store to are you using two crutches and long leg braces and swinging your uh, limbs through in space, which as physical therapists know, is not really functional. So we're hoping that our team in this grant um, can look at these data and really try and make some stronger claims regarding imaging's ability to predict functional walking. Ah, that seems like a really big deal. 
to be able to say something more specific than just, you know, here's the percent chance that you'll be able to walk in some fashion, but we don't really know exactly what that will look like. That's that's good stuff. Um, so I guess I'm wondering now, you know, how close do you think this is to being clinic ready? Well, that's a great question. And again, I think the beauty of our experimental design is that we are using information that is already uh, collected clinically. So in theory, I mean, once we start getting going and publishing these papers, you know, the short term could be, well, we could implement this at least in a place like Craig Hospital within a few years, right? I think the longer term problem is that issue that I mentioned previously where there is a culture of uh, using X, Y, and Z to predict walking that doesn't include imaging. And and the, the much harder challenge is going to be, can we change the culture? Um, that remains to be seen. However, things like the Discus podcast will hopefully give us a platform to reach a wider audience, and we'll see. We'll see if we can change the culture a little quicker than perhaps previously. All right. Well, and when you think about what this is going to look like, and I, I know that this will take some time, you've got your grant, you'll figure all this stuff out, but then what do you think... Um, the prediction or that algorithm is going to look like? Will it be something that we can predict walking based on imaging alone? Or do you think this will be in addition to the current algorithms that we use um, clinically? I'm thinking about the algorithm from um, Van Middendorp's work, um, where we're using Inski findings from the motor and the sensory findings to come up with the likelihood that someone's going to be able to to walk. And so do you anticipate that it'll be a separate algorithm all on its own, or will it be in combination with with other physical exam findings? Well, that's a good question. Uh, There was a recent paper published that essentially confirmed the importance of the physical exam, the Inski motor scores for prediction of these type of things. And what I foresee is that um, these imaging techniques would simply be a supplement. Um, I don't think we could ever say that these these techniques could be better than the physical exam, but we're looking for tools and techniques that can supplement the physical exam, especially early on in those early days. And my hope is that we don't just limit it to walking, but, you know, as as we know, folks with spinal cord injury, often what's more important to them um, over walking would be other things like bowel and bladder and sexual function, you know, can these imaging techniques be a supplement um, to help predict and manage uh, those type of issues that also occur uh, after spinal cord injury. And so, yeah, long story short is, yeah, I think these things will be a supplement to the physical exam. Boy, and if I can put in my plug too for as long as you're looking at this, if you can look at the upper extremities too, it'd be much appreciated. (laughs) Excellent. Sounds like a good collaboration. (laughs) Sure, yeah. I'll keep throwing out the ideas and you work them all out. How how about that? All right. Deal. Yeah, that's a deal. All right. I'll take that deal. Uh, And then so on that note, I guess, you know, this seems like a whole different way to look at MRI data. Are there other patient populations that this is being used in or that you think um, it could be used in in the future? 
Well, I think as far as the imaging techniques are concerned, yes, I mean, this, these imaging techniques are being applied to uh, other patient populations, folks with cervical spondylotic myelopathy, that comes to mind. Um, and multiple sclerosis is another, is another kind of patient group that, that these imaging techniques are kind of being trialed and or developed by. I think, uh, especially for any, any patient population, another key here is that these techniques need to be relatively simple to use, right? As we know from, let's say, the early Apple products, the beauty was in the simplicity, right? The, the first iPod. Um, I think that the more complicated these clinical prediction rules for walking or other outcome measures, the more complicated the clinical prediction rule, the less likely it's going to be used clinically, right? So can our team and or others get these techniques to be fully automated, you know, a push of a button and using other technologies such as machine learning, collaborating with folks that are skilled in fully automating and coding um, these type of things, can we, can we do this to make it very simple and user-friendly for the clinician, right? That's, I think that's the challenge. Sure. That seems really important for, for the clinic, for it to be simple and, and for it to be time efficient. Time's always a shortage in the clinic. Absolutely. Absolutely. In reality, no one's going to sit and an adult color for hours on, on, a, on a patient's spinal cord when we know that motor scores are indeed helpful to predict, right? But can we come up with ways to save time and keep things simple to help aid in the clinic, right? Andrew, if someone listening were wanting to keep up on developments in this area, because it sure seems like there's a lot more to come, um, are there certain researchers or groups that they should be keeping an eye on in the research literature? Yeah, absolutely. Um, first off, I think the credit for the spinal cord toolbox and all the good work going on there uh, should be given. Um, it's a group out of Polytechnic Montreal, led by Dr. Julian Cohen-Odad, um, Benjamin Deliner, and, and others in that group. They have also collaborated with, uh, looks like, Dr. Jason Talbot at University of California, San Francisco. And so his group out there has been doing a lot of good work um, in this area. And then, of course, uh, Dr. Michael Fellings out of Toronto has also been looking into this um, for many years, as well as um, other cutting-edge innovations that might be proved to be very helpful for folks with spinal cord injury. Well, Andrew, I'd like to thank you for being here with us today for this, the inaugural episode of our podcast, Discus, Discussions in Spinal Cord Injury Science. And it has been such a pleasure being with you and hearing all about the great work you've got going on. Well, it was my pleasure, Rachel. And uh, thank you uh, again for having me. And looking forward to not only the podcast, but the whole Discus project. Thanks again, Andrew. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning into this first episode of the Discus podcast. We look forward to bringing you more episodes soon. See you next time.